This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of reverse shoulder arthroplasty from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary about reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Reverse shoulder arthroplasty is a type of shoulder arthroplasty that uses a convex glenoid hemispheric ball and a concave humerus articulating cup to reconstruct the glenohumeral joint. The center of rotation is moved inferiorly and medialized, which allows the deltoid muscle to act on a longer fulcrum and have more mechanical advantage. Reverse shoulder arthroplasty is indicated for conditions such as rotator cuff tear arthropathy, comminuted four-part proximal humerus fractures, and prior failed shoulder arthroplasty. Now let's get into the episode. Starting with the epidemiology, reverse shoulder arthroplasty was popularized in Europe and now increasingly used in North America since 1990. Moving on to the biomechanics, the advantage of a reverse shoulder arthroplasty is that the center of rotation is moved inferiorly and medialized. This allows the deltoid muscle to act on a longer fulcrum and have more mechanical advantage to substitute for the deficient rotator cuff muscles to provide shoulder abduction. This allows increased, but not normal, shoulder abduction. Keep in mind that a reverse shoulder arthroplasty does not significantly help shoulder internal or external rotation. Reverse shoulder arthroplasty can be combined with the latissimus dorsi transfer to assist with external rotation. Moving on to indications of a reverse shoulder arthroplasty, clinical conditions include cuff tear arthropathy, pseudoparalysis, anterosuperior escape, proximal humerus fractures in the elderly, a rotator cuff insufficiency equivalent, failed arthroplasty, and rheumatoid arthritis. Starting with cuff tear arthropathy, this is characterized by severe glenohumeral joint arthritis with superior escape in the setting of a massive rotator cuff tear. Moving on to pseudoparalysis, this is an inability to actively elevate the arm in the presence of free passive range of motion and in the absence of a neurologic lesion. This occurs secondary to irreparable rotator cuff tears in the setting of glenohumeral arthritis. Moving on to anterosuperior escape, this is characterized by an incompetent coracoacromial arch and humeral escape in the subcutaneous tissue with the hemiarthroplasty. Moving on to proximal humerus fractures in the elderly, reverse shoulder arthroplasty can be indicated in three or four part fractures in patients over 70 years of age, in the setting of head splitting fractures, as well as significant osteopenia or poor bone quality where the greater tuberosity has poor potential for healing. Moving on to a rotator cuff insufficiency equivalent, this is characterized by non-union or malunion of the tuberosity following trauma or prior arthroplasty. Failed arthroplasty can be an indication for reverse shoulder arthroplasty when all other options have been exhausted. Finally, rheumatoid arthritis can be an indication for reverse shoulder arthroplasty only if the glenoid bone stock is sufficient. As far as patient characteristics and the clinical conditions that we just mentioned, these will typically be low functional demand patients, physiologic age of greater than 70, sufficient glenoid bone stock, and a working deltoid muscle with an intact axillary nerve. Contraindications to reverse shoulder arthroplasty include axillary nerve dysfunction, deltoid deficiency, acromion deficiency, glenoid osteoporosis, and active infection. As far as axillary nerve dysfunction, it's important to separate permanent from temporary axillary nerve dysfunction. With respect to deltoid deficiency, global deficiency of the deltoid is a contraindication. However, partial deltoid deficiency is a relative contraindication, but reverse shoulder arthroplasty may give reasonable results. Moving on to operative planning, 
Recommended views on radiographs include a true AP or a Grashy view, which determines the extent of the arthritis and looks for superior migration of the humerus. An axillary lateral will look for posterior glenoid wear, and you should also obtain a scapular Y view. A CT scan is indicated if you are unable to obtain an adequate axillary lateral. The CT can be useful to determine glenoid version and glenoid bone stock. It can also estimate the degree of osteopenia. An MRI can be indicated to evaluate rotator cuff integrity and fatty infiltration. Moving on to the approach for a reverse shoulder arthroplasty, this can be done through the deltopectoral approach or the anterosuperior approach. The advantages of the deltopectoral approach is that it preserves the deltoid muscle, it has exposure of the lower pole of the glenoid to facilitate glenoid implant positioning, it can extend inferiorly for increased exposure to the proximal humerus if needed, you can perform a simultaneous latissimus dorsi transfer if needed, and it also has a decreased risk of axillary nerve palsy. Disadvantages include the need to take down the subscapularis for adequate exposure, need for extensive capsular release which may lead to instability, lack of exposure to the posterior glenoid, and potential for stiffness given immobilization required for subscapularis healing. Moving on to the anterior superior approach, the method involves the anterior deltoid being divided from the anterior edge of the acromioclavicular arch, allowing increased glenoid exposure. Advantages of the anterior superior approach is increased glenoid exposure, the ability to preserve the subscapularis, decreased postoperative instability due to preservation of the anterior stabilizers, ease of axial preparation of the humerus, and easier fixation of the greater tuberosity for fractures. Disadvantages include increased risk of injury to the distal branches of the axillary nerve, the anterosuperior approach violates the anterior deltoid muscle, and has the risk of excessive height or superior tilt of the glenoid. Now let's talk about the surgical technique for a reverse shoulder orthoplasty in a bit more detail. We'll go over humeral preparation, glenoid preparation, and tuberosity repair. So starting with humeral preparation, the humeral head typically is osteotomized anywhere between 0 and 30 degrees of retroversion, typically 20. More retroversion is gaining popularity as it may improve post-op external rotation. The humeral head can be salvaged for autograft if needed, and an osteotomy generally is not needed in the setting of fracture. The long head of the biceps will be tenotomized or tenodesed, then you will ream and broach the humerus similar to a conventional total shoulder arthroplasty. The humeral height and version is typically judged by the humeral calcar or tuberosity fragment. If the calcar is missing in the setting of fracture, height can be judged by the pectoralis insertion, which resides 5.6 centimeters from the top of the fractured humeral head. Moving on to glenoid preparation, the labrum is excised and the capsule is released circumferentially. It's important to expose the inferior glenoid by subperiosteally elevating the tissue to ensure proper base plate positioning. Accurate central guide wire placement is dictated by the availability of the best bone stock for base plate screw fixation. Place the base plate as inferiorly as possible with an inferior tilt. This is shown to decrease implant loosening and scapular notching. Navigation systems are increasingly used for accurate base plate placement. A superior screw is generally aimed toward the coracoid base and the inferior screw is aimed towards the scapular body. Finally, you will mount the glenosphere onto the base plate. The size is chosen based on patient size, motion, and preservation of stability. Female-slash-smaller patients typically receive a 36mm, and large men receive a 40mm. Finally, moving on to tuberosity repair, 
anatomic repair of the greater tuberosity is associated with improved shoulder external rotation, function, and patient satisfaction compared to tuberosity resection or malunion. Now let's briefly talk about rehabilitation after reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Immediately the patient is placed in a sling post-op. Early rehab will involve passive or active assisted motion only during early rehab. Then the sling is discontinued at three weeks if the subscapularis is not repaired and six weeks if the subscapularis is repaired. Make sure to limit passive external rotation or active internal rotation during this time and avoid pushing out of a chair during acute rehab. Keep in mind that subscapularis re-tear would lead to anterior shoulder instability and the treatment for this would be early exploration and repair. Now let's talk about some complications of reverse shoulder arthroplasty. We'll go over scapular notching, dislocation, glenoid loosening, deep infection, acromial or scapular spine fractures, and neuropraxia of the axillary nerve. So starting with scapular notching, with respect to incidence, this occurs in 44 to 96% of Gramont-style prosthesis. There is a decreased incidence with lateralization of the base plate, and keep in mind that scapular notching is related to impingement by the medial rim of the humeral cup during adduction. Risk factors include a superiorly placed glenoid component, superior tilt of the glenoid component, medialization of the center of rotation, and a high BMI. Moving on to dislocation, as far as the incidence, this has a reported rate between 2% to 3.4%. Risk factors include an irreparable subscapularis, which is the strongest risk, proximal humeral bone loss, failed prior arthroplasty, proximal humeral nonunion, and a fixed preoperative glenohumeral dislocation. Moving on to glenoid loosening, with respect to incidence, glenoid prosthetic loosening is the most common mechanism of failure. The incidence significantly increases at approximately 25% at five-year follow-up after revision reverse shoulder arthroplasty. As far as treatment, make sure to treat using a staged procedure to fill the glenoid cavity with autogenous bone and await incorporation with a hemiarthroplasty prior to reimplantation of a new glenosphere. Moving on to deep infection, with respect to incidence, there is a 1-2% to risk of deep surgical site infection following shoulder arthroplasty. Patients may be susceptible to infection due to a large subacromial dead space created by the reverse prosthesis. The most common organisms include C. acnes and staphylococci. Risk factors include younger age, defined as less than 65, and males are at the greatest risk. Other risk factors include reverse arthroplasty for traumatic reasons and a history of failed arthroplasty. As far as treatment, a two-stage revision is considered the gold standard. Keep in mind that the most common antibiotic treatment of choice for C. acnes is vancomycin and clindamycin. Moving on to acromial or scapular spine fractures, the incidence is 4% after reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Risk factors include female sex, osteoporosis, and a medialized preoperative center of rotation. As far as treatment, conservative management leads to 40-50% to union rate, and operative management with ORIF or tension band wiring of acromial fractures has increased union rates. Finally, moving on to neuropraxia of the axillary nerve, with respect to incidence, there is a 0.5 to 1% rate after reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Risk factors include an anterosuperior approach as well as humeral lengthening. As far as treatment, neuropraxia of the axillary nerve is usually transient. Now let's quickly talk about the Cervo classification of scapular notching, which is divided into four grades. Grade 1 is characterized as limited to the scapular pillar. 
Grade 2 is characterized as in contact with the inferior screw of the base plate. Grade 3 is characterized by beyond the inferior screw. And Grade 4 is characterized as extending under the base plate approaching the central peg. Now let's finish this review session talking about outcomes of reverse shoulder arthroplasty. As a quick overview, results are dependent on indication with cuff tear arthropathy having the best results. As far as radiographic outcomes, radiographic results deteriorate after 6 years and clinical results after 8 years. As far as survivability, some case series have noted 10-year survivability is approximately 90% for implant retention. And finally, as far as complications, various studies have shown that complication rates among surgeons decrease after a surgeon has performed at least 18 to 45 cases. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 75-year-old male presents to your clinic for evaluation six months following a left revision reverse total shoulder arthroplasty performed for a primary reverse shoulder arthroplasty with recurrent dislocations. He is doing well and is neurovascularly intact. He is able to flex his shoulder to 120 degrees. The patient asks about his expected rate of complications going forward. Compared to his long-term course following his primary reverse shoulder arthroplasty, which of the following is the patient currently at significantly increased risk for? And the choices are 1, axillary nerve palsy, 2, acromial stress fracture, 3, pseudoparalysis, 4, periprosthetic humeral fracture, and 5, glenoid component loosening. The correct answer to this question is 5, glenoid component loosening. So compared to a primary reverse shoulder arthroplasty, revision reverse shoulder arthroplasty significantly increases the risk of glenoid component loosening and fracture with rates approaching approximately 25% at five-year follow-up. Revision reverse shoulder arthroplasty can be a salvage procedure performed for a failed shoulder hemiarthroplasty, failed anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty, and failed primary reverse shoulder arthroplasty. The most frequent complications noted following a revision reverse shoulder arthroplasty is loosening or fracture of the glenoid. Other commonly seen complications are dislocation and recurrent instability. The increased risk of glenoid loosening and fracture is thought to be due to the relatively high ratio of metal within the confines of a small glenoid bone stock leading to significant stress rise. Walsh et al. evaluated the clinical and radiographic outcomes of 240 reverse shoulder arthroplasties with a minimum two-year follow-up performed by a single surgeon from 2003 to 2007 and compared the results to 240 reverse shoulder arthroplasties performed by the same surgeon between 1995 to 2003. The authors noted that the postoperative complication rate decreased with increased experience from 19% to 10.8%, with dislocations reducing from 7% to 3.2% and infections reducing from 4% to 0.9%. The overall revision rate decreased from 7.5% to 5%. The authors concluded that experience significantly modified results and complications. Wagner et al. reviewed 27 cases of revision reverse shoulder arthroplasties performed for a failed primary reverse shoulder arthroplasty with a follow-up of 4.4 years. The authors noted six patients developing complications requiring further revision surgery, or 22%. Overall, the five-year survival free of further revision was 85%. At the most recent follow-up, six patients, or 23%, had glenoid lucency, with smokers having a significantly higher risk. 
The authors concluded that revision reverse shoulder arthroplasty, when used to salvage a failed primary reverse shoulder arthroplasty, can be a successful procedure, but dislocation and glenoid lucency remain a concern, particularly in smokers. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, this patient has no evidence of an axillary nerve palsy currently six months out from revision reverse shoulder arthroplasty. There would be no expected cause of axillary nerve palsy going forward. Answer two, acromial stress fractures most often occur during implantation of the reverse shoulder arthroplasty and can be a cause of persistent acute shoulder pain after reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Answer three, pseudoparalysis is generally caused by severe rotator cuff deficiency, which reverse shoulder arthroplasty compensates for. And finally, answer four, periprosthetic glenoid, not humerus fractures, are the most common complication following revision reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Moving on to the next question. When performing a routine reverse shoulder arthroplasty, which technique would increase the moment of the deltoid compared to the native rotator cuff deficient shoulder? And the choices are one, using a glenosphere with 10 degree inferior tilt, two, switching to a more constrained polyethylene component, three, switching to a humeral prosthesis with a smaller neck shaft angle, four, switching to a short stemmed humeral component, and five, placing the glenosphere more inferiorly. The correct answer to this question is five, placing the glenosphere more inferiorly. So by placing the glenosphere in a more inferior location, the moment of the deltoid is increased. To quickly review, reverse shoulder arthroplasty differs from anatomic shoulder arthroplasty in that it places a hemispheric ball on the native glenoid side or the glenosphere and a stem socket slash shell on the humerus. The center of rotation becomes fixed medially and inferiorly, thus lengthening the deltoid and placing all deltoid muscle fibers lateral to the center of rotation. This optimizes its function and it becomes the primary mover of the shoulder. Any technique slash design that moves the center of rotation medial and or inferior or lengthens the deltoid will increase the deltoid moment and muscle efficiency. Tashjian et al. evaluated the effect of a Gromont-style prosthesis and lateralized center of rotation prosthesis on range of motion and the force required to elevate the arm. Though both designs medialized slash inferiorized the center of rotation, they reported variable effects on both outcome measures with changes in glenosphere diameter, glenosphere tilt, and humeral shell and insert offset. They also found adding inferior glenosphere tilt increased the abduction force and decreased the deltoid moment. These findings demonstrate the subtle but possibly significant effects of intersystem designs. Langor et al. evaluated the impact of glenosphere diameter on joint range of motion and abduction force. They noted a loss of internal rotation and increase in shoulder abduction force as diameters increased for both Gromont style and lateralized center of rotation designs. These findings highlight the biomechanical advantage that a medialized inferiorized center of rotation provides in reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Giles et al. investigated the effect of reverse shoulder arthroplasty design on shoulder abduction force and joint load. They found increased glenosphere size and polyethylene thickness increased the force required to abduct the shoulder and increased the overall joint load. Conversely, humeral lateralization decreased the shoulder abduction force. This shows that excessively sized polyethylene may negate the beneficial effect of lateral humeral offset. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, inferior glenosphere tilt will decrease the deltoid moment as shown by Tashjian et al. Answer two, using a more constrained polyethylene component shouldn't have any impact on the deltoid moment. 
Answer 3, adding more varus to the humeral component will shorten the deltoid length. And answer 4, using a shorter stemmed component should not have an effect on the deltoid. Moving on to the next question. Superior placement of the base plate during reverse shoulder orthoplasty is a known technical risk factor for which of the following complications? And the choices are 1, inferior acromial erosion, 2, humeral component loosening, 3, infection, 4, inferior scapular notching, and 5, superior scapular notching. The correct answer to this question is 4, inferior scapular notching. So inferior scapular notching, a common complication of reverse shoulder arthroplasty, occurs most often due to superiorly placed glenoid components on the native glenoid. This allows hinging and notching inferiorly of the humeral component during shoulder movement, leading to scapular notching inferiorly. Simovich et al. demonstrated that superior positioning of the glenoid component as well as superior tilt of the component with respect to the scapula were factors that led to scapular notching. Patients with this radiographic finding also had poor clinical outcomes. Gerber et al. provide a review on this surgical technique. They describe its biomechanical principles of moving the center of rotation more medial and distal, as well as implanting a large glenoid hemisphere to allow increased deltoid function. They also warn of the procedure's high complication rates, which are approximately three times that of conventional arthroplasty. Attention to technical detail is needed to reduce high complication rates. And moving on to the final question, which of the following patients would be the most appropriate candidate for a reverse total shoulder replacement? And the choices are 1, a 71-year-old man with a massive rotator cuff tear, glenohumeral arthritis, and forward elevation to 40 degrees. 2, a 45-year-old man who has failed three rotator cuff repairs and has glenohumeral arthritis. 3, a 65-year-old man with glenoid wear and pain 10 years following a hemiarthroplasty. 4. A 72-year-old man with severe glenohumeral arthritis and an intact rotator cuff. And 5. A 30-year-old man with a locked posterior shoulder dislocation. The correct answer to this question is 1. A 71-year-old man with a massive rotator cuff tear, glenohumeral arthritis, and forward elevation to 40 degrees. So the choice between a standard total shoulder prosthesis and a reverse total shoulder prosthesis should be based on the nature of the joint disease, either centered humeral head and normal cuff function or migrated humeral head and abnormal cuff function. Chronic massive rotator cuff tears may result in rotator cuff arthropathy. In this case, the only effective treatment at present is a reverse total prosthesis. Servo et al. reported the results of reverse total shoulder at 44 months and found significant improvements in forward elevation and functional scores. From OKU9, quote, the reverse prosthesis should be reserved for patients with a disabling shoulder arthropathy and massive rotator cuff rupture. In addition, the reverse prosthesis should be used exclusively in patients older than 70 years with low functional demands. The correct choice has the following characteristics. Elderly, low functional demand, and active forward flexion to only 40 degrees with a deficient rotator cuff. That's all for this review about reverse shoulder orthoplasty. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. 
If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.